Yo, what's up everybody? It's time for the In Off The Bench Podcast. I am Daniel Ball and I'm joined as always by my co-host, my partners in crime, my brother from other mothers, Jim Cross, Randy Jobs, Mike Hughes. And guys, tonight is episode three titled Pro at Everything, because our guest tonight is definitely a pro at everything he does. We're going to bring on Anthony Renato. He's a pro baseball player, pro podcaster, and pro businessman. But before Anthony joins us, Jim, you had a big weekend, college baseball, a lot going on. Give me a brief summary of, of the weekend that was, man. Oh, uh, yeah, man. Baseball's good in Mississippi. Obviously, went to Oxford to Swayze for a couple games. They got a couple W's. Got to see five or six in-off-the-bench podcast guests play. Leatherwood hit bomb. Elko hit two bombs. Doc did his thing on the mound, so that was a cool fan cleave. So that, that and then Sunday, man, went out to Starkville, went to the dude. Got to see little brother Kate Smith uh, get his first weekend start. Got the win. Managed to salvage that series against Long Beach State, so... Good to get in the baseball mix, and man, we're just getting started. I'm going to try to be anywhere and everywhere, my brother. I hear you, man. It's going to be a, a great season, and, a, and so far, it's a, it's a good start to it. But, you know, let's let's get into this. We've got a good episode tonight, so help me welcome on to the show with the biggest interview on podcasting this week. Pro baseball player, pro podcaster, pro businessman, and overall great dude, Anthony Renato. What is going on, everybody? I'd like to welcome Anthony to the show today. Anthony, Anthony, thank you for taking the time with us. It's a pleasure having you on the show, brother. Um, but I got some beef with you. I got a serious problem going on. You know, I, I would love to say that I was your biggest fan in Chicago, but I wasn't. I was <laughs> not at all. I'm a North Sider at heart. I'm a Cubs fan till I die. 2016 was a very magical year, but you gave me some problems. You gave me some problems in 2016 that I'd like to touch on you. Your first career home run against Jason Hamels on July 27th, 2016 in Wrigley Field. And, and I've worked at Wrigley Field the last three years of my life. I'm there every morning. It's a beautiful place when no one's there. Nonetheless, a full pack crowd like the Crosstown Classic. Uh, really quick, I, I just wanted to pick your brain right off the bat and just ask you, what, what was that atmosphere like? What's it like hitting your first career home run in Wrigley Field, in a Crosstown Classic, in one of the biggest series of the year, aside from maybe Red Sox-Yankees? Man, I, I, I think I need you to hype me up more because you keep saying your first career home run, like I'm going to hit more of them. And I'm like, I'm going to have like career homers and shit. Like, I mean, I, I, that was my only shot at it. And uh, no, man, I, I had like nine at bats before that. It was, it was an incredible experience. I don't know. It was, it was kind of one of those things that um, it didn't seem real at the time, you know, and, and I wish I could have experienced it and enjoyed it even more, but it was, it, it's funny. Like, you know, how the game goes is I had just got traded over to the, to the White Sox, like a month or something before that. And so I had just got called up to the big leagues, like three days before that. So as dope as the experience was, I'm running around the bases and I'm like, how do I even celebrate with these guys? I don't even know them. Like, like, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, Oh, what's up guys. It's cool. But I don't even know, you know, but it was, um, it was really cool. I, it was something that I think I appreciate more now that my career is over, you know, and just, um, uh, because, you know, when you're in the middle of your career, you think it's going to keep lasting. And, and this is just the beginning of things that you, you kind of have that arrogance and, and young youth, you know, behind you. But um, it was really cool. It was a great experience and something I'll never forget for sure. Without a doubt. And, you know, with the Universal DH officially being a part of the MLB, whenever 
they decide to start playing. Um, you know, it, it, it's going to take away a part of the game. Moments like that, we're not going to be able to see anymore. So having moments like that, you know, big John Lester, guys like that, getting getting to see those kind of guys hit their home runs, it, it is something special. But I am going to give you your flowers, Anthony. I am going to respect you because I am a fan of your game. I just hated the jerseys you were wearing. Now, I do rock with the Red Sox. I'll say that. Jim and Daniel know they are my American League team. They are the only Sox I'll ever rep ever. Um, <laughs> definitely not the white ones. But it, it comes down to it, though, you know, being an American, Italian-American born player. I, I was doing some research, and I found out you just got inducted in the Italian-American Hall of Fame in Louisiana. What's that moment like for you? Because I know growing up, you know, especially in Chicago, being, you know, surrounded by minorities, I'm one of the only Italian guys ever. So growing up, being inspired by Anthony Rizzo, Berea, and, and Yogi, and all these other guys, you know, it's not as common as everybody thinks. So for you to be able to lead that cause and be able to lead, you know, that face uh, of this generation, what, what was that like for you? And, and what does that what does that mean to you? Uh, it, it means and, and, you know, I think you, you can respect this, you know, the Italian roots run deep and in New Jersey in the Northeast, like that's like there's so much pride there. So uh, it meant the world to me that they even considered me in that in that realm you know and some of the names that were on the list even in louisiana you're like oh man i didn't even know he was from here you know all these different right. things or did this here um and then i i was fortunate enough to meet the chairman and the the president of the national um italian american hall of fame sports hall of fame and i think they want me to come up to chicago that's where the um the national one is and i think i might be inducted up there too so it was, uh, it was a pretty surreal moment and something that, uh, you know, doesn't feel real to me even as I'm experiencing it. It was um, something my grandfather, you know, would take some crazy, crazy pride in. Uh, he he kind of taught me a lot about, you know, all of our Italian heritage and, and the importance of our last name and um, the pride that I took in that. And, and honestly, when I was a kid, it was, I was doing things for our last name. I had this, I felt like I carried this almost like weight where he instilled that that in me to be like, Hey, you're the first Renato to do some stuff, to go to college, to graduate, to, to play, you know, do something professionally. And you're doing something for our name and for Italians that worked hard and came over here and fought for this life. So your, your grandfather would be, your great grandfather would be super proud, you know? So um, those moments are really special to me. I'm excited, you know, to just be a part of that and, and be included in that. Without a doubt, bro. And I think that's sick. I, as you know, someone who played ball and someone, you know, like I said, being Italian myself, there's not a lot of guys to be able to look up to. And I know I'm in my 20s, so it's a little different now, but I'm sure there's plenty of kids out there that are excited to see you get inducted. Um, when you do come to Chicago, I'll make you, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you this, I'll give you your flowers. I know some time has passed. A certain team has won the championship since you've hit that home run. So <laughs> uh, I'm for very forgetful when it comes to things. So I'll make you a deal this summer. If and when Rob Manfred decides that we're allowed to play baseball again, if you are willing, I'll get you an extra little Cubs hat. We can go down to Wrigleyville and I can get I can grab you a beer. I can grab you a beer to call it even and then we'll be able to celebrate your, your induction. Wow. What an honor. Wow. I, I consider myself so honored. Thank you. I'll make sure I call you're the first person I'll call as soon as I touch down in Chicago. You better. You better. If you call anybody else, I'll just be offended. Right. Gotcha. Anthony, if you. If you step off the plane in Chicago and just ask for Mike Hughes, they'll know exactly who you're yeah, talking right? about. Yeah, everybody's going to be lining up telling me who he is, right? Yeah, he's on, he's on, he's a, on a lot of, uh, lot of, uh, back a lot of milk cartons and, and, and water posters. <laughs> he's, he's around. He's around for sure. No, man, let, let's uh, backtrack a little bit. Obviously, you know, being, being Italian, it, it, it's, 
very family oriented, but where, where are you from? Where does the family reside? Uh, tell me a little bit about growing up there. Yeah. So, uh, if you guys are familiar with that MTV show, Jersey shore, uh, that's exactly where I'm from. So, uh, I'm, I grew up in the Jersey shore. So it's, uh, I, I went to a high school called, um, St. Rose high school in Belmar, which is right on the beach. I grew up in a town called Jackson, which is uh, like a pretty big town in, in New Jersey, right in central Jersey. Everybody always says it's like north and south Jersey, but uh, I'm smack in the middle where we're from. A bunch of my family is still up there, but a bunch of my family is kind of spread around. My dad lives in Texas now. My mom's still in Jersey. My sister's in, uh, I don't even know where she's at. Where is she? North Carolina. My brother, my brother's in Virginia. We're all over the place and I'm in Louisiana. So um we were a super tight-knit family growing up but everybody kind of my parents always kind of instilled like whatever we wanted to do was good with us, you know with with them and they supported that so I think you know as soon as I went and took my scholarship to LSU everybody realized that I wasn't going to be in New Jersey too much longer everybody kind of started doing their own thing and um kind of moved on but at the same time when we all link up for Christmas holidays that kind of stuff it feels like we hadn't uh, hadn't missed a beat and and we've lived in New Jersey all together forever so it's pretty cool you're one of four siblings, right? Yeah, yeah. I got three. So, uh, I got, I got, I got a full sister and then a half brother, half sister too. What's the what was the age ranges? What's the dynamics like growing up in the house? Are you guys, you know, I, I had an older sister, so I could imagine like there was a lot of fighting, and then eventually you become best friends. Is it similar for you? Yeah, no, it's definitely. Um, but it was funny. Like I said, I, I had a half brother, half sister, so. They actually didn't grow up in the same house, but we were super tight. We were probably, we're like, I think my brother and I are 15 years apart. My sister and I are 17 years apart, something like that. No, 15 and 13, something like that. Um, and then I have a younger sister who's my full sister and she's three years younger than me. So I grew up with her and that's what it was. It was like, you know, um, she was kind of always there and, and we were always battling little things, but she's like my best friend in the world. She actually just got pregnant. So she's um, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be an uncle again. My bro older brother and sister already had, have had kids. They've had, you know, kids for years and stuff. Um, but I feel really, really proud of her that she's about to have uh, her own baby. So that's super cool. And we're super tight now. That's, uh, that's awesome. Congrats to her. Um, yeah, obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be an uncle. That's, that's kind of a big deal. You in a family like that, it's your role model, your, your inspiration, but you know, looking back on your, you know, trajectory as a kid, obviously you're very athletic, you're, you're playing sports. What were some of your influences? Who did you look up to as you were growing up? Yeah, it was going to be kind of funny uh, and ironic. I, I, I grew up in Jersey, so I was a huge Yankee fan. We were big time Yankee, Yankee fans growing up. We would watch baseball almost every single night when the Yankees were playing, especially during the summer. So during their run in the 90s, um, you know, I became a big Derek Jeter fan. He was, he was my favorite player. It was, you know, I was kind of that shortstop kid growing up, the, the leader on the team. And, and in New Jersey, you know, everybody wants to be Derek Jeter. He's the captain. He's the best. He's the leader and all that stuff. So my dad and, and took kind of pride in telling me to model things around his career. And we would sit down and we would watch him. So it was really ironic that my first game was actually against the Yankees. Uh, Jeter was my first out and strikeout, which was kind of funny. My family was there for it. And, uh, and I actually got to be at Jeter's last game too, because it was at Fenway and, you know, obviously I was playing against him and stuff. So I got to go shake his hand behind second base when we did the farewell thing. And uh, that was really cool. So it was a full circle moment, but yeah, big, big Yankee fan growing up, Jeter fan for sure. Man, Daniel, he cutting into your question later about the Jeter thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, it's, you know, when you, when you throw out the Yankees and then you throw out, 
you know, anywhere from mid nineties, like you already know who the guy is. Like the, the, there's no question about it. Like you have to be a Jeter guy. And it's, it's hard to be honest, as much as I don't like the Yankees, it's hard not to be a fan of him. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're not a fan, you're definitely some sort of hater. You know, you got a little bit of saltiness in there and you're a little bitter, something, you know, something's deep inside you. If you can't, you can't, if, if you can't at least do the hat, you know, hat tip and respect. Uh, right. Yeah. There's definitely some demons in you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My son last year, eight years old, um, he was a part of a team called the Yankees and he was given number two. He has no clue who Derek Jeter is, but he didn't like that. He wasn't his normal number seven. I was like, bro, you're playing for the Yankees and wearing number two. You're super straight. Just <laughs> Like, um, yeah but anyways you know uh, where did you go to high school at uh, I went to a high school called St. Rose in New Jersey yeah so I was looking up you know your baseball career there and everything and and just starting right off the top you know some guys are late bloomers you my guy are not as a sophomore <laughs> you pitched back-to-back no-hit games you uh during the 2005 state championship game pitched a two-hit shutout and hit a three-run homer which led St. Rose to the New Jersey state title. Like, did you expect success to come so quickly uh, in your high school career? I'm, I guess like, as I get older, I guess I can answer this. Like I, I it was just ignorance. It was, yeah, I kind of did. Like, I just, I, I didn't, I didn't really know that it was success. It was just honestly what I felt like I was supposed to do. Now looking back and really having an understanding of being a kid and being a competitor and, and those kinds of things, it was like, no, that's just my job, man. Like, you know, like I was, I was, I started the game and I was the three hole hitter and there was guys on base and I hit a three run homer and I pitched six shutout innings. Like we won the game, you know, like, and so I, I don't know. It was, it was now, now granted, I know that, you know, like some of those stats are, are, are good and better, but it was like, at, at that time, I think I was just ignorant to what success was and, and all of that, you know, and looking back on it, it's kind of like fun to enjoy it and, and look and be like, damn, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> Yeah, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that because uh, in order to play the game of baseball, you got to have confidence and expect, you know, yourself to do great things. So uh, really not a bad thing to have, honestly, in my opinion. Um, But, you know, continuing on, you know, you selected as the co-star newspaper athlete of the year as a junior, recorded a 7-0 mark with a 0.96 ERA, 99 strikeouts. Um, And then senior year, you know, 2007 Rawlings All-American selection, All-State, All-County, All-Division, whatever, you know, all the accolades, my man, like, you know, you just killed it in high school. And then, you know, one thing to kill it on the field, but then it also says you were the Dwight D. Eisenhower Citizenship Award recipient and president of the Student Council and member of National Honor Society. Is there anything that you did not do and accomplish in high school, Anthony? No, man, I was the best ass kisser that anybody could have asked for, dude. I did everything. I checked every box, man. I was, uh, no, I, I, I don't know, man. I, I think my dad, my dad did a great job raising me and, and I took a lot of pride in, in, in doing little things like that. I really did. And, and, um, I was telling somebody this the other day, I went and spoke at LSU yesterday and there was this kid that came up to me afterwards and just like super proper shook my hand. I was like, damn, this kid comes correct. Right. And he was like, I'm going to West Point. And I was like, oh, I can definitely tell. Right. And damn, why does my alarm keep going off? Sorry. Um, and, and I was telling him, I'm like, man, I can respect that. I, and I, I think you're, you're going to, you're going to, he was like, do you have any advice how to succeed and do, I'm like, just do what you're doing right now. You're, you're asking questions. You're being yourself. You're looking me in the eyes. You shook my hand. And I was like, I just want to let you know. Like, and he asked me too. He was like, do I need to be super tall to like command respect? <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like, dude, no, not at all. I'm like, 
this right here, this conversation, the way you're addressing me, you know, all of these things go such a long way. And I promise me, you're going to be successful. And I was like, I told him a funny story. My dad raised me and that's going back to this and, and, and I'll, I'll tie it all together. But my dad at literally the age of like three, four, five, six, when, before I started playing sports, my dad was a, a Navy CB and he just thought it would be the coolest thing ever for me to go to the Naval Academy at Annapolis. So from three, four, five, as soon as I could talk, he would have me introduce myself Hey, I'm Anthony Renato and I'm going to the Naval Academy at Annapolis <laughs> at like three, four, five years old, just kind of instilling that discipline in me. And I always kind of took pride in little things like looking people in the eyes, good handshakes, you know, good conversation, that kind of stuff. So I think it was just like the next steps and like almost competition, like, oh, there's a good citizen award. Like I can treat people really well. Like I can do that shit. Let's go. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Well, you killed it. So. I got to know, man, the, the biggest question for me, uh, obviously, I'm an LSU fan and uh, family's from Louisiana. So Louisiana is is everything to me. I got to know how a kid from Jersey ends up at LSU. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know, you'll, I think you'll appreciate this story. I don't know if you remember the name Terry Rooney, but he was um, he was the recruiting coordinator that got me here. And this man was nuts. He was like, I mean, he would drink three, four Red Bulls a day, like rock stars. It was, it was our joke that we would do 6.30 morning bullpens, like AM bullpens, and there would be two rock stars in the trash can already, like the empty trash cans for the morning. Dude was just nuts, right? And so he called me on July 1st, all that stuff, and I was super hype about LSU. Actually, I mean, funny story, actually. I remember the, the day that LSU called, the way he said LSU, I didn't really put two and two together that it was LSU. So I remember like putting the phone down and looking at my dad. I'm like, LSU? And he's like, Louisiana State, dumbass. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, what's up, Coach Rooney? You know, like, and I put it together because he was talking so fast. Um, and then we talked all summer, and then he probably went like two or three months without talking to me. And right before my visits, like I had three visits lined up. I went to Alabama, Virginia, and Vanderbilt. Oh, I was supposed to go to Vanderbilt. And there was one open weekend because my niece was getting christened and I didn't have a visit scheduled. And he forced me to come on a visit. I come on a visit. I wound up committing on the spot and I didn't even go on my visits to Vanderbilt. So it was just like, when I got down to Louisiana, I just felt it, man. It was just like the people here, the atmosphere, everything, like every box that I wanted to check, like LSU checked for me, the the, the, the baseball program, everything. Coach Rooney and Coach Maneri were just like, it felt like family right from the jump, you know? Um, and my dad and I were just like, we don't even want to go to Vanderbilt. Like, this is the spot. I don't need to go anywhere else. Well, let me first say that all three of us collectively don't like Vanderbilt. So you made the right decision <laughs> in all our eyes. And then yeah, you talk about LSU. Every athlete that we interview, like I said, my family's from there. I go down there at least five, six, seven times a year. Um, it's it's a whole different culture. Like it's the the state is its own country almost. And uh, one, once you're a part of it and they and you're welcomed in, like man, like everybody there is is family. It's it's wild. Um, yeah. But with that, like, what? so, you know, you talk about you were excited and it was a place you wanted to be, but was there a culture shock coming from the Northeast going down South to the boot? Oh, 100%. That was, I think, the biggest thing was, uh, I mean, I come from New Jersey and if people are just handing things out to you. I'm like, there's, there's some sort of catch here. I'm like, what do you want from me? Right. So when I got down here, everybody's like, come on, I want to cook you this. Come on over here, do this. I want to, I'm like, what do you guys want from me? I'm not, I like, no, I'm not doing this. So I think that was the biggest thing. It was just trying to understand that people are just good here and they're just nice. And I think that's uh, not, not that again, people aren't good or nice from New Jersey, but it's just, there's, there's, there's a little different, you know, mm. viewpoint on other people. And I think I just like the South. I think in general, people are nicer, open. Um, and I've just made, made it a home down here. So, uh, you know, I, I, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. So 
you know, getting into baseball, freshman season, want to highlight a few things. You know, first uh, was your win over Bama in the SEC tournament. You know, what was it like getting that first win, especially against the SEC rival in that uh, SEC tournament? Yeah, man, it was uh, – I hadn't pitched a lot that year. I had some injuries in my elbow and everything. So, um, I just felt lucky that I was that I was out there even to be in the SEC tournament and stuff like that. And then that coach put me in there in, in those critical times. I got lucky, I think, in that game because I think we were down by like two or three runs. And, and I did my job. I kept us in it, you know, and, and didn't give up any runs like that. And so we came back and, I was, you know, part we were on a hot streak at that point. So I wound up being the pitcher of record. But it was still really cool just to be a part of that win, part of that win streak and everything like that. And I think it, those, those little moments kind of set me up for, for the rest of my career. Well, yeah, and you talk about a little moment setting you up for a big moment. I mean, you get to pitch the last inning of the Super Regional over UC Irvine to advance to Omaha. I mean, talk about a moment like, you know, you talk about being set for a stage, but, you know, Super Regionals, uh, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, right? Oh, man, it was uh, – yeah, I, was, I just didn't even believe it. I was like, wait, you want me to do this? So I was like, no, okay, all right, let's do it. And then, sure enough, like, just – of course, the ball gets tapped back to me for the last out. So I got to even not mess it up, throwing over to first base. That was a, that was the hardest throw of my life, like grabbing that ball and just throwing over to first base. I was like, oh, shit. you know, like that was the worst one. I think I jogged it halfway over there. <laughs> yeah. When you when you're making the final out throw, you know, we talked to we had Cameron James from Mississippi State uh, who won the national championship and he made the final throw from third base routine throw. And he said oh, he felt like it was the the hardest, most difficult throw. And he said it felt like it took forever to get there, right? Like, yeah. and it was just routine. So it's funny how those moments, man, something that you just do on the norm, like it's, it's you know, big time. Crazy, yeah. But uh, y'all obviously go to Omaha and you pitch the inning in the opener against North Carolina. Um, you know, obviously y'all y'all got taken out by North Carolina, but nonetheless, you got to go to Omaha, get your first experience there. I mean, how cool was that? Yeah, that was great. And I think Coach Maneri did such a great job. I think we were like down like 9-3 or something like that, 9-4, you know, and he just wanted to get my feet wet, just get me in front of the crowd, get me on that stage, knowing that we had a really good team coming back the next year. So um, just to pitch in that stadium as a freshman with that team, um, yeah, it was just – it was. I remember my dad was out there too, and it was really fun because he didn't get a chance to see me pitch the next year because he, he wound up having this freak knee injury – falling off a ladder like in the like after we won the super regional that week in between Omaha so it was a really cool experience for me especially looking back on it now yeah well apparently you know he was continuing to prime and set you up you know getting you that experience because sophomore season you know you're the Tigers number one starter throughout the season recorded a 12 and 3 record uh 3.04 ERA and 19 starts you know uh 50 walks, 159 strikeouts, finished number three in the nation in strikeouts, number five in wins, became the first LSU pitcher to lead in strikeouts since Kurt Ainsworth. And then uh, to cap it off, you were the winning pitcher in game three of the College World Series final versus Texas. So, I mean, just take us through that whole season, that whole run. Like, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of moments. I mean, tell us about some of the best ones and just uh, what that whole experience was like. Yeah, I think I think it was really cool because it was the first year we were in the new box. So I think that first kind of like magic, you know, like just that like, all right, there's a lot of tradition that we need to carry over. And 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 I felt like a lot of us felt that. So that was kind of cool. But it was really it was really more of a story of of I felt like we were we knew we were going to win the national. And I know a lot of people say that and teams say that. Right. But I mean, I feel like you have to have that confidence and that that connection with your teammates and. And, and it's something that at 32 years old, we still have a group me and there's 30 of us in there and it's all the guys from the 09 team. And 
I think we were all brothers then and we're all brothers now. Like we've all, you know, families and things have taken different shapes and forms. But, uh, you know, I think that was something that st sticks out to me was in, even in the biggest moments when we were down and everything like that, it was it was kind of like look down the dugout and be like, where are we at in the lineup? Who's going to be the hero today? All right, cool. Like, you know, it was just we knew something good was going to happen. It was fun um and it was a challenge and, and and stuff like that but i mean the memories that we made there with that team i think well i mean the rest of my career just speak for itself and and seriously were the probably the most lasting memories that i've ever had yeah no doubt winning the national championship uh leading the charge and like you said the the camaraderie you know we actually just did an episode with uh some of the parents of the lsu baseball players it was an idea that they had and they were just talking about not only the camaraderie that their sons have but they they have like all they do is hang out with each other. They go to every game and tailgate. That'd be my question for you about the box. We were having this conversation. I go to all the games in the SEC, and, you know, like, for instance, Mississippi State and Ole Miss, they got grill pits and left and right field, but the box doesn't have that. And it just doesn't make sense to me because Louisiana, man, it's, it's made for cooking. And so, you know, I got Kay Beloso's dad, Rodney, tell me, you know, it's all about cooking in the parking lot. And I'm like, man, they got they got to change that. The box is too beautiful and perfect. Like, they need to add in the left and right field cooking sections. You know what I'm saying? Oh, man, I wouldn't be upset about that. I would love to go back there and get some cooking, you know, like now, especially now not being a player. I would love to be back there with the fans. So, man, I'll, I'll, I'll see what we can do. We'll start putting some suggestions and some feelers out there. That would be a good idea. I like that. Look, I'll tell you what I wouldn't have done. Mississippi State, uh, shout out to them, but I'm a sore loser. Uh, because of their cooking pits, after they got beat by Long Beach State in the series this weekend, they actually got pictures. They showed them on social media. They were handed down trays of barbecue and food that they had cooked for the for the players. And, uh, man, it's good hospitality. That's good sportsmanship. Wow. But if they would have beat me in my house, they would have to go hit up mug shots or whatever. That was <laughs> but, uh, you know – Last question, and then I'll let Daniel start to talk to you about, you know, draft and pros and everything. Like, LSU, uh, you know, career, summarize it, everything. Um, no regrets, right? I mean, that that was the school that was meant for you all along. 100%. I, I, I can't imagine my life being anything um, other than it, than it here in Baton Rouge. And, and I wouldn't be able to do half, not, more than half the things I do on a daily basis if it wasn't for coming down here and making that decision and everything like that. So I'm super grateful for LSU, Coach Maneri, and, and, the, and the people of Louisiana more, you know, especially because they were the ones that supported me during my career and, and still supported me after my career. And, and the reason that I have successful businesses and an opportunity to do these things. So 100%. So, Anthony, you, you go on to be drafted by the Boston Red Sox, obviously 39th overall pick in the supplemental first round. Um, like you had some injuries prior to that. Was it a surprise to be drafted or you knew that was kind of where you were going to be? And what's the feeling like knowing, man, I like, I'm living my dream right now. <laughs> uh, again, I, I really think that I was, I wish I would have had that mindset, honestly. I don't think I did. And that's the thing that that kind of hurts me now thinking back on it. Um, I felt like I was just like doing what people told me I was supposed to do. And it was just like, oh, all right, you go to LSU so you can win a national, you, you know, you become the best pitcher in the country, you win a national championship, you become a first rounder, you go to the major leagues. And, and really until like 2014, 15, like everything kind of went that way, you know, like I had some some bumps in the roads and things like that. Um, but I wish I would have been more grateful for the experience as much as I did enjoy it. I didn't, I, I think I started 
and looking back later on in my career, right, that was like how things started to really weigh heavy on me. Um, but in the beginning, it was it was something really surreal just to win a national championship and be a first rounder. Honestly, that was like something that really meant something to me and something I took a lot of pride in because I wanted to go to college to better myself. I got drafted out of the 11th round and I was like, you know what? I want to make improvements and do this and do that. So, you know, for some personal goals and objectives to win a national championship and then become a first rounder was, you know, just like, I mean, everything that I could have dreamed of to go to college, you know, and do. You feel like there's a little bit of regret looking back on it that you didn't kind of take a step back and enjoy, enjoy just the ability to get to that position. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like I just, I wish, I wish I could have had some perspective. I wish, but it's so hard because I, I see 20 year olds now, right? Like, and, and, and there's no way that I could even think of how to like relate that to them. These things that you just got to experience yourself. But yeah, I do. I wish I could have had some sort of perspective to be like, how can I enjoy this more and just um, understand things, you know, that I, that I understand later in life. I guess it's that, that same cliche. If I, if I, if I only knew what I know now, you know, did you, so you, you started in Greenville, you went to Salem, Portland, Pawtucket. Um, did you think that the road was easy? Was it a grind? Like what was, what was the route for you? Cause we've heard a lot of different perspectives on minor league baseball. Um, I'd be interested to see what your perspective was going through it. I think my perspective was uh, that it was just par for the course. I'd heard so many like horror stories and it really, I mean, it was not glorious. And I came from LSU and that was the biggest thing. I think my agents, you know, warned me of like, Hey, what goes on at LSU is not going to, what's going to happen in the minor leagues for the first three years. You know, you're gonna have to work your ass off to get to the point like where you have the facilities that you had at LSU. So I think I had a little bit of an understanding of it and at least an awareness and, and a heads up about it. But my experience I felt like was very privileged as a, as a first rounder. So I felt like I could afford other things that other guys couldn't have. And I didn't really like that feeling. It felt weird. I wanted to be just normal. You know, um, I wish I would have had a little bit more confidence in myself just to be who I was and that kind of stuff, you know, and just be like, dude, this is who you are. And like, this is part of your journey and just go with it. But I kind of wanted to fit in more and be, you know, like, oh, I'm in the suck with the grinders, you know, and that kind of stuff. But my reality really wasn't as bad as some of the things that it could have been, you know, the experience wise, if, if that makes sense. Gotcha. So, so then in, in, in 2014, obviously all the, the hard work and stuff, you get called up, um, you start seeing some payoff, you, you get your first start against the Yankees. I mean, you get your first strikeout against your, your hero, Derek Jeter. What is it like knowing that you, they go, hey, Anthony, uh, we're going to call you up. Hey, just so you know, you're going to play the best team in baseball. <laughs> uh I, I, I just was like, I was, I didn't really care who it was. It just felt like so surreal that it was the Yankees. I think it was more that I got to call my dad and be like, dude, we did it. Like, you know, all the, all the BS that he went through, all the things like of my mom's family and, you know, I don't want to say my mom's family, but family members and, and things like that, like criticizing him for investing in my career and time and things like that. Right. Um, was kind of all came to fruition in that moment. And it was against the Yankees on a Friday night at Fenway. Um, so I, I think that phone call was like the moment that made me feel like, man, all this stuff was worth it. And him and I get to 
or our family, you know, gets to experience this together. Yeah, that's uh, got to be an incredible feeling. And, and I'm sure your, your, your parents, obviously, getting a chance to see you do that, probably something pretty special and some, a memory that they'll always cherish. But um, you, you end up having some stops in Texas, Chicago. Um, out of the Texas, Chicago, and Boston, you know, teams, where, where was your favorite spot? What was your favorite team? It's hard not to say Boston because they drafted me and, you know, the experience with Boston and the way that they treated me was completely different than the other ones, than the other locations, just because I was an investment to them, right? Like they, they put their money into me. It was a draft pick. It was a different, they had a, they had a vested, you know, interest in me succeeding. Um, the other guys, you know, it was more like, all right, if this works out, like, cool, we look smart, you know, but there was no, it didn't feel like there was anything behind it. My experience itself, though, I loved Chicago. I just love the city. I, I love I loved playing with the White Sox because it was the exact opposite of of the Cubs, which felt like this like pristine, clean, like buttoned up, you know, version. And and here I am with tattoos and things like that. And I just felt like we were the grinders in the South side. Like it was like, all right, cool. We suck. It's like we are grinders. Like it doesn't matter. Like this is almost like, like not pro ball, you know, like, but it's in the major leagues. Um, so I just really enjoyed that experience. And uh, Chris sale was super dope. Like he was my, he was wound up becoming really, one of my really good friends. So um, obviously having that kind of superstar, you know, be friendly with you as a rookie and that kind of stuff was, was something that uh, made that experience a lot more enjoyable. And I got to play with Todd Frazier, who was a kid that I like, you know, in New Jersey, we grew up kind of playing against each other, stuff like that and knew of each other, but we weren't like friends or anything. So we, we became friends with the White Sox and that was really cool too. Since, since you brought up Chris Sale, were you there when he did the whole cutting up of the, uh, the old Jersey type thing? Uh, I think that was that year, was it not? Hey, I got the best story for you if you guys got five minutes, like, because this is, Let, I mean, let's go. so the reason that I got to pitch in the major leagues and hit a home run was because Chris Sale cut up the jerseys. So I was in AAA and the, my manager calls me in the office and he's like, hey, dude, I need you to be on standby. Just hang out in the office right now. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, dude, you might be going up, you might be going up to Chicago. And I was, and then, and this was, mind you, I, I'm, I'm just a month in with this organization. So I hadn't been called up yet and I didn't know anybody. And I was like, oh, all right. So I just sat in the office for like 45 minutes. He went out and took a phone call and all these different things. Um, and he comes back and he's like, all right, yeah, you're, you're going to go up. I can't tell you what's going on right now. Like blah, blah, blah. But there's some, there's some drama going on in the major league team. And I'm like, all right, cool. So I start packing my stuff and then I go on Twitter and I see everything that, Chris Sale got suspended because he cut up a bunch of jerseys and all this stuff. So they had to have a bullpen day and push the different starter up. So I was going to make his start two days from now or whatever, because he was going to be suspended. Um, <laughs> so I get to go up and I'm in the bullpen for the first two games. I, I get called up the next day. I, I go up there and it's a double header. I get there in between the two games and there was a fight in the locker room between Two of the players, I'm not gonna, I don't, I don't, I'm not gonna say the players, but because I don't think it publicly went out there, but there was a fight between the two players, and I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, I walk into this mess and then had to go play a game, and we we had a walk-off win, and I had to go celebrate with everybody. And then the next day I'm in the clubhouse and the manager comes up to me and he's like, uh, yeah, dude, you're starting for sale. And that was the game that I hit the home run. And then the next like the next day, he comes off his suspension and like we just became friends. He just comes up to me, he's he's like dude f you and he dropped like he said the f word and he's like he's like 
you take my spot, you hit a home run. And then we literally laughed, became best friends. And at the end of the year, we had these replica jerseys that were sitting on the table. And I was like, dude, this is going to be so weird. I was like, can you just sign this for me? I want to frame it because it's the replica jerseys that he cut up. And he was like, yeah, dude, I got you. He signs it and he writes, fuck these jerseys on the jerseys and cuts them up. And so I have it framed in the shop. So I don't know if you saw it in the shop, but I have it in there. And like, I just think it's the coolest story because I mean, I got to pitch that game that he got suspended for. He writes that on the jerseys without me asking, cuts them up. I was like, this is like a story that was forever meant to be. And I, I think it was just so cool that I got the jersey and got it nah, framed. I, I missed that in the shop, but man, that that was the thing. You had so much cool stuff in your shop. Like I probably, a lot of things I missed because I, I was walking around and I had my wife and kids with me and, you know, they're like trying to go shopping at the, the women's boutiques next door and stuff. I'm like, no, nah, I'm trying to hang out in here for like a couple of hours <laughs> anyway. So that was a problem. I was battling the family, trying to check out everything you had going on. But like I said, I'm going to be down there a few more times. I'm going I'm to check it all out. Yeah. That's so awesome. you mentioned you, you mentioned Chris Sale and, and just you know the type of person he was and the relationship that you were able to build with him. But you you end up going overseas. You go to Korea. Korea. You finish up your career there. You know how do you end up in in Korea? Like how does that come to be? So after the 2016 season, I was out of options, which means like they they couldn't really move me up and down again without taking me off the 40 man roster. So I knew, and I, in the year before I had some offers from Japan um, and that's just kind of like, they, they kind of contact your agent and they're like, Hey, would Anthony have any interest in like leaving the 40 man roster and coming over? Like all these different things, they try to like buy your contract from the team or whatever. Um, and so the next year Korea approached and I told my agent, I was like, dude, if this, if this opportunity comes, let's, let's chase it, let's do it. Um, and so he found a really great deal and, and they bought out my contract with the White Sox. The White Sox were, realized that I was probably on the fence anyway. They were either going to trade me or take me off the roster. So they were happy to get 500 grand for me to get off the roster, you know. Um, so, the, so the Korean team bought me off the roster at 500 grand. Then they negotiated my contract and, and I got a contract with them, signed with them, and go over there, do the physical, all that stuff. It was wild. So you, you eventually make the, the ultimate choice to, to hang it up. What? What went into that choice and was it just you were ready or was it, you know, uh, injury? What was, what was the case for you? So my season out in Korea actually ended with a line drive back at my hand and it broke my hand and I had, I had a plate and seven screws put in, excuse me, put in there. And I came back to LSU and I graduated and I was just like, not really crazy about like training and like, you know, I just didn't have the same drive that I did to be like, man, I'm really excited to come back and do this, do that. So I just kind of like took it at that. I had a contract with the White Sox and we came to terms and the same day that we came to terms, I actually was working out and I ruptured my L5 S1 in my back. And I kind of took that as a sign, like, all right, I'm, I'm just going to sit the next few plays out. I'm going to go back to LSU. I'm going to graduate. And once I did that, I really just never had to drive to ever play again, honestly. Like, I told people that I was training and stuff because I wasn't ready to let go of it. And I really did. I think I trained for like a year and a half or something. But I really didn't have intentions of playing. I think it was more of I was afraid to let it go and, and, and that kind of stuff and move on to the next phase. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was just time for me. It was, I was ready. 
So speaking of the next phase, man, the, the post career, you mentioned that you graduated. So when I looked it up, I was doing some research. Your your it says on LinkedIn, 2007 to 2018. It was a flashback for me from high school. It's about how long it took me to get through that. Your story was a little bit different. You did a lot of cool shit in between. I was just hanging out. But yeah, this so, is way cooler than mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but you know, you go back, you get your degree, and you're kind of. I'm sure at this point, your identity has been baseball for so long that it's probably, you know, was it was it a hard transition? We talk about you know college to the minors to the majors, but was it a hard transition going from you know professional athlete now playing in Korea and then coming back and being when all due respect a civilian again? Yeah, yeah, no, that, no, that was the, I think that was the, it was, it was, it was the scariest, but at the same time, the most exciting, it was the most liberating because for my whole life, I felt like I did, I had this like Anthony, the baseball player label, you know, and I had to fit into this box and be this person. And I couldn't do this exercise because I might get hurt. I can't do this activity because I might get hurt. I can't try this supplement because I might fail a drug test, you know, like all these different things. So it was kind of fun for me to just be like, oh, cool. I can take any supplement I want. I can do whatever I want. Like, I don't have to worry about workouts. I can, I can go play basketball, like whenever I want, you know, all these different things. So I, that's where I, I kind of enjoyed it, but it was more like, oh man, what am I really going to do now? Like, you know, like time-wise and, and purpose-wise and, and, and obviously financially, I'd, I'd made some money. So I didn't, I didn't need to work in the second to put food on the table, you know, but I realized like, oh man, this is, this is not sustainable. Right. So um, that's when things started to hit me. And that's when I was like, man, how am I going to incorporate some of the things that I've learned, some of the things that I've been involved in, whether that was investing, you know, throughout my career, um, or am I going to like totally go into a whole nother field and, and try something new? Yeah. And obviously being as we're on right, right now, you also have a podcast, the, the up and in show, uh, just talk to us about how that kind of transpired and kind of what your vision was for that. Yeah. So I just like, like we were talking about every athlete doesn't know what to do. So I, I, I tried the baseball lesson route. Right. Um, I realized I wasn't very good at giving lessons and, and kids were way more interested in asking me what it was like to pitch at Fenway Park or strike out Derek Jeter. Um, well, that's a really cool shit to hear about. Anthony. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. I was like, if I was a kid, that's what I would want to know more too. So um, I was like, how can I kind of reach more kids? How can I talk about this stuff more? How can I get more stories like this involved? Right. And use my network. I was listening to a lot of podcasts at the time. And Tony Robbins was, he was always talking about how in order to become a good businessman, he interviewed like 50 billionaires and understanding like how they got there. So I was like, oh, that's cool. Maybe I'll talk about other baseball players and athletes and their story and, and give these kids access and things that I didn't have. And if, and if a college coach or, I mean, not college coach, high school coach or a dad or, um, you know, somebody that is looking for this information, these stories, whatever, this is a good way to do it. So I thought the podcast was a cool way to interview people, bring together a community and kind of talk about the things that um, traditionally people didn't have access to. Yeah, absolutely. And just from listening, I mean, you guys hit on a lot of things, what it's like to be an athlete and the side that, you know, we highlight on this show a lot, but it doesn't get talked about enough is that mental health side of that, because everything, it seems like you're living out the dream, right? You're pro baseball player, pro football, whatever it is, but it's still like real humans, real emotions and getting through that grind, or maybe that you have injuries or, you know, whatever it is. So I, I'm to, for me to see you highlight that it's, I know it means a lot to us on this show. Cause we try to do the same thing, but was that always going to be part of your message when you started the podcast? Like, look, I'm not just going to talk sports. I'm going to talk about kind of the ugly side of things too. Absolutely. I think that's where the name um, up and in show came from. It was more like, let's talk the mental side of things. Let's talk about adversity. Let's talk about your struggles, how you got to the top. What did you learn from that kind of stuff? Like what were some of the resiliency tactics that you developed 
through this, you know, adversity and these things and, and to get to the top, to, to get to where you're at. Um, so I think the up and in show kind of played on uh, my, my lack of ability to keep the ball down in the zone. Right. Um, but it was also like kind of like up and in the mind of the people that are on the show too. No, absolutely. So you talked about having to put food on the table and one of the ways, obviously, for those that don't know, was the F45, the training franchise. So just kind of talk about how you got involved with that, number one, and then kind of what your vision is going forward with that. And this is another reason that I love the podcast, right? Because like podcasting is a great organic way to network and things like that. So really down the the podcast rabbit hole, I kind of discovered F45 training. It was just one thing led to another, right? And I wound up meeting this girl um, and we, we hit it off and we wound up dating for a little while, but she was building some F45s in San Antonio and she had started working out at one in Austin. Then she became like a ambassador there. Then she went back to San Antonio and started it and had a couple of business partners in it. And I was like, man, I really like that model. Um, and I felt like with the LSU baseball community, the F45 franchise is really built around community and wellness and health and that kind of stuff, but it's like community driven. So I was like, man, this is really cool. Like I could get behind this. And I think Louisiana um, had a unique opportunity in the fitness space, the wellness space where I can incorporate some of our background in sports and stuff like that in that um, and bring that community together in Baton Rouge. And, and I felt like I had the right business partners, the right people with me, the team, um, that kind of stuff. So yeah, it just made sense. And F45 is a great product. So it was easy to kind of jump on board with them. Now, you know, I spent some time in between marriages, not to talk about myself. And I didn't meet the same kind of girls that were building F45s, man. They was building <laughs> something different. I just looked in the right places. I got lucky. That was it. Absolutely. Well, I'm <laughs> remarried now. I hit the lottery there. I got to say that in case she listens. But, yeah, that's it. that's it. I'm not married, so that's a problem. See, I'm looking in the wrong places. I just keep chasing stuff. <laughs> well, no doubt. So you kind of you talked about it over the course of your career. You kind of made some investments. Um, and what about when you're a, have some money or people think you have money? Are people constantly coming at you looking, hey, invest in this new thing, invest in this, and help me build this? Yeah, um, or at least my experience, it, it is. I think I think too, like when you put yourself out there as somebody that's in that world, right? Like, or that you want to do business. Like, if you're an athlete and you just play baseball or basketball or football or whatever, and you just carry on with your family, do your thing. Like, I'm sure it's going to be hard to reach those people, right? But the people that put themselves out there, yeah, I, I got I got hit up all the time, and it was something that I felt like I attracted, right? Because I did put myself out there, and it was something that I did want to do. So. Um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of my experience that people assume you just have deep, 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 endless pockets. And that, um, because you have money, you'll just write a check and, and do whatever and, and not even worry about it. Right. And just give them money. So that was always an interesting experience. Yeah. Use a lot of families from what I hear. I don't know. I don't have that experience, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but over, over your, I actually heard something today on a podcast speaking of that was Ryan Stuman. He said that if you have, you know, a hundred million dollars, it does you no good if you don't invest it because money depreciates and all that. So I understand the investment thing. I do it. It's just on a small, much smaller level. All right. So to talk about some of those business ventures that you've been into, obviously we talked about the podcast and F45, but there's been other business ventures that you've gotten into now. And what, what are those? Yeah. So, uh, F45 was obviously one of the first ones I made some, I made some angel investments over my, you know, the course of my career. So I invested in a place called uh, Diamond Nation up in New Jersey. It's the um, Diamond, it's Jack Cuss and Jenny Finch Baseball Softball Academy. Um, that's been a really great investment. I, I invested in the initial round of uh, Marucci Sports down here in, in Baton Rouge, and they made a successful exit during COVID, um, which was really nice. And then I made some other small angel investments in like 
the food industry. Those didn't go very well. So I lost a little bit of money. I recouped um, one of the investments, which was nice, but I actually lost some money. Um, I lost some money in a land deal too. I, I thought I was going to partner with somebody who was going to um, get some financing to develop some land. Um, luckily, I held on to the land as collateral, but you know, just over time, I, 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 I took a deal after three or four years of nothing happening of like, you know what, I just want my money back, take the land. What am I going to do with these eight acres of land? You know? Um, so I wound up losing a little bit of money there, um, but, but gained a lot of valuable experience. And then um, during COVID I started cards and culture and that's my, my, my new thing that is truly mine. Something that I started with a, with a business partner, um, but something that I kind of have full control of, which um what I learned with writing checks and being a minority owner and things like that is when you don't have control and your money's in somebody else's hands, it's, it's kind of a, a helpless, scary feeling. Um, and that's why I like cards and culture because it's something that I've put my money into and um, I can, I can kind of like be in control of that, which is a lot of fun. So talk about that. The last question I got to give you back to Jim, but when you talk about bill, I noticed that in a lot of your business ventures, they are old teammates or whatever. How do you go about picking a business partner? Obviously, you know, you, you want everybody to be honest and say, yeah, I had the money, the financing or whatever. What have you learned there to pick better business partners in the future? Yeah, yeah I, I think everybody's putting their, their, their best foot forward, right? So you got to really sift through everything and look at some of, it's going to be uncomfortable. That's what I've realized is you got to ask a lot of uncomfortable questions. You got to do things that um, are not really natural. Uh, so that's but it's 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 part of business and and something that I'm definitely gonna gonna hang on to going forward. But I think those those lessons then allowed me to take the steps forward and and not make them the next round, you know. And and that's where I think I'm at now. And I have some really good mentors and advisors. And I think that building cards and culture um, the right way versus not, not not that I did it the wrong way. It was just I was on the wrong end of things. I think in in my last ventures. So I lied to you. I have more questions. All right. I like it. Fire you, hit, you hit on something there about, about mentors. And, and I just, for everybody that's listening, I'm sure listens to you, how important, because for me, that's how I got, well, mildly successful in the business world was picking a mentor, somebody that was at where I wanted to be and surrounded myself with those kind of people. So I always try to stress that message. And I would imagine you do the same, right? A hundred percent. And that's exactly it. Uh, I think one of the things I realized too, is the more that you learn, the more that you learn, you, you don't know shit, you know? And, that's right. And, and so the more questions and the more people you can surround yourself, uh, surround yourself with that are smarter than you, or, or to me, this is the biggest thing, more experienced than you, right? Because you can be the smartest person, you can make the best decisions, you can have the best emotional intelligence, all these things, right? But experience wins, I think, you know, and that's one thing that as a rookie in the, in the business world, that's what I'm learning, I don't have. So I've chosen business mentors and partners that are older than me, that have done it more than me, done it better than me, um, and have had success in the areas that I wanna go through. So you're exactly right, man. And it's a, and I got lucky with Cards and Culture. Um, my business mentor organically became an investor in my business. So now I'm, I have an investor who is a mentor of mine as well, which is awesome. No, that's awesome. You know, I had an old man tell me one time, son, if you ever find yourself the smartest person in the room, you need to leave that fucking room. In the wrong so, room. That's exactly yeah, you're I, in the I, wrong room. I was like, I was like but uh, yeah, no, I love that phrase. And, and, it, and it's true, man. I, and, and I'm going to say this too. I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I think I've applied that to, like you said, the people you surround yourself with, your circle. I'm not going to say your friends, your family, that kind of stuff, but I'm just saying if you don't feel challenged or if everybody's starting to come to you for answers and stuff like that, it might be a good time to start challenging yourself where you need to go surround yourself with people that um, you're looking for answers from, you know, that kind of stuff, if that makes sense. 
No, absolutely. So this really will be my last question. You hit on cards and culture. For those that don't know, what is the vision and what what about all the great things happening there? Because Jim, he came, it was like he was a kid at Disney World. I think he enjoyed that trip more than he enjoyed the whole trip down to Louisiana was just that time he was there in cards and culture. I know. I wish I would. I was like on some phone calls in the back and like sometimes I get stuck back there because it's my technically whoa, whoa, my whoa, whoa, whoa. I got to know, actually, you know, since we brought this up, you know, I ended up seeing on Instagram later, uh, you know, careful what you put on social media. I seen you in a tattoo session. You sure you didn't blow me off for a tattoo session? It's OK if you did. No, oh, that tattoo session was like way later in the night. That was, that was uh, okay. Okay. I was Jay Zumo's. I'm like, when did I get a tattoo? But I, I got a tattoo uh, on my leg, right? Yeah, because I, I'm, hey, I, I'm fully sleeved up. So if that would have been what you blew me off for, I actually wouldn't have been mad. You would have understood. But, yeah. but, I, but I told my wife, I, I seen it in your story, and I was like, hey, when he was in a business meeting, I actually think he was getting a tattoo. <laughs> no, that was uh, no, that was like seven or eight p.m. at night. So I think you were in the shop earlier in the day, right? I yeah, think in yeah. the middle of the day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that happened at night. So uh, that would have made me feel bad, but no, no, no. That was uh, that was nighttime stuff. So, um, shoot, what were we talking about? Sorry, what was I saying? What are the great uh, things happening in cards and culture? Oh yeah, yeah, cards and culture. Yeah. So I think the vision with that was it was always kind of like a, a community landing spot for for athletes, entertainers, influencers, that kind of stuff, but more athletes to have a, a place that they can interact with their fans and fans can interact with their athletes in a, in a newer, innovative way. Um, so I, I have a bunch of TVs in there. So I want to have video game tournaments. I want to have autograph signings. I want to have, you know, I've had art viewings and live art watch parties, things like that. And, and kind of the exit strategy with cards and culture is hopefully to get um, bought out or acquired by like a, like a, um, like a fan duels or a DraftKings or something like that, that sees the value in sports gambling and watching or a streaming service or something like that, where um, the, the space is used for, for dual action, right? It's got the sports cards, the memorabilia, the art and the gallery feel where people can hang out and it gives it that different uh, cleaner feel, but you can actually come in there and watch sports. You can, your kids can play video games. You guys can break cards. You can buy some sneakers, buy, sell, trade things. Um, and I think it's built for, for bigger cities. So I would like to expand it to bigger cities and kind of embodies that city's culture and art and, and kind of creative style uh, within that city. And I think one of the things that's important to me too is um, we're taking a page out of the Marucci playbook where we're developing an advisory board of, of athletes um, and with the NIL partnerships too and professional athletes and things like that. And, and all the different cities that we want to go to, I think it's important to, to, to have athlete advisors kind of like help us through that process and influence kind of the way that I do in Baton Rouge. Hey man, how upset were you that NIL came after you were done? Oh my God. I know, but you know what I get, that's why I like, that's why I like cards and culture. I can live vicariously through these kids and my business can play a part in it. And it's like, you know, I can, I can do a little bit of both. So it works out well for me. If I, if I was doing nothing and I was just in finance, I'd be salty, man. I'd be salty. <laughs> yeah. Because all three of us have careers. That's actually where all our sponsorship money, uh, we've set up, uh, we've had nine, nine different athletes we sponsored in, uh, and giving nice. out payments too, and so that's actually been the whole goal of of ours is is to get these uh these men and women taken care of, uh, especially ones that deserve. Like an example, just from like LSU, Kaya Johnson, um, you know, star gymnast. Uh, she came all the way up here, uh, up to Memphis, and her and her uh, teammate Alana Shinakova, um, they yeah they did a meet and greet. They uh, signed autographs, took pictures. Uh, we gave them character awards, thousand dollars each, and and that's the kind of thing that we're trying to do. Um, because you know Rand, Randy's playing it off over there with his low money 
talk over there. That man, that man's balling out the frame. So he don't he don't need any money from podcast sponsors. That's awesome. No rich person ever said they had enough money though. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. All right, but you know, to make it a little more lighthearted and transition, we're gonna play a little game that we play with every guest called this or that. You down to play? Let's go. Let's go. All right. So there's only two rules in this game. You can't say neither and you can't say both. You have to answer the question. All right. So with that being said, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? Half full. Do you have a reason behind that or is that just what it is? No, that's my perspective. I like to see things on the positive side. Exactly. Okay. Because most people say that's optimistic. I'm a half empty kind of person, but it's not necessarily because I'm not optimistic. I just feel like there's more that I need to do. So I don't know. Everybody looks at it a different way. Absolutely. All right. So this one will be a fun one for you. You know, uh, we talk about the culture coming from North, coming to the South, you know, Italian food or Cajun food. Oh my God. That's a no brainer for me. Italian all day. <laughs> oh, really? I thought you were going to say no brainer for, no for me. It's real quick. It's not like I, it's, it's it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer for me. They're now no longer going to invite you to the crawfish bowl. I know, I know. I got to be careful with what I say, right? But hopefully the Italians got my back. You know what I'm saying? I got my Italian people down here too. We'll see. All right. So my business friend over there asked me to ask you this question. This is this is out of my league, but he said NFT or the actual card. Ooh. All right. I like the actual card if we're talking about sports cards, but. NFTs in general, like the collection and the, and the phrase that they're, I mean, the stage that they're in, I don't know. My brain is addicted to that stuff, like addicted. How many do you own? Oh, man, I probably have over 100, 150 NFTs. Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah, he, he asked me to ask that, and I was like, bro, you got to break that down before I He said, what, what's an NFT? I'm like, well, to be fair, I only learned this like a month ago, and I was reading all about it. It's like that new crypto you know, NFT world, it's, it's, it's a whole, you can really make some money and I've made a little, just, just a yeah. tiny bit. It's pretty wild. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty wild how much, if you, if you, I'm deep in it though, I'm deep in it. So. All right. So this next one will be interesting because I, I hear you talk about being an entrepreneur and how much you love it. You know, what's more fun for you, uh, being an athlete or being an entrepreneur? Man, I think entrepreneur, because I, I think I'm more in control. I get to, I get to like, pick the people that I surround myself with, you know, and, and, um, the events that we put on that kind of stuff. Like I'm in control of that. When I was an athlete, it was like, be here at this time, do this, be this way, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, there was a lot of privileges and a lot of great things that came with being an athlete. Don't get me wrong. Um, uh, but I, I think I enjoy and I'm happier with entrepreneurship. Yeah. I mean, and we, we get a lot of athletes that say that it's amazing how most people would think that, that playing, you know, um, we got a guy, Jacob Billingsley. He's now got the biggest sports performance uh, complex in the whole Mid-South area. And he says he's more fulfilled by working and teaching young athletes the right way to train more than he was an athlete himself. So it's amazing how when we talk to you guys, how what you're doing after is more exciting sometimes than the actual plan itself. So it's, it's kind of a wild thing because for us guys who never made it to anything like what you made it to, I'm thinking, man, I'd rather be playing, but, you know. Right. Yeah. All right. So, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, you hadn't settled down yet. What, what do you think uh, a girl would uh, rather see out of you? You think she'd rather you be funny or be smart? Well, I like to think that it would be smart because I don't think I'm very funny. So, but I think women would probably like funny. <laughs> Look, man, you see me, I'm not very attractive. My wife is a 10, so it's definitely funny. 
That's I know. That's what I'm saying. That's probably why I'm single and I'm not married. That's it. I got to be funnier, man. I got to learn. Teach Rand- me. Something. Randy, how did I, I how, how did I land there? Because I'm not funny or smart, bro. I don't even know. What <laughs> uh, yeah, laughing, bro. That's funny. I like it's that. Because you can lift a thousand pounds. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah it is. That's it. All right. So more iconic to you, and this may be a no brainer, but I I was in your shop. You know, I, I seen numerous paintings. Obviously you know, legendary status since it's passing. Who's the more iconic uh, symbol to you in sports, Kobe or Derek Jeter? Oof. I think this is unfair because Kobe. Oh, no, no. no. That's worse. why I, the last two questions always have to be the hardest questions. And he doesn't get the money or friends question because he's a pro athlete. Yeah. I'm going to say Kobe. And I never, ever thought I would say that. I really don't. It was Honestly, but and and if Kobe didn't die, I don't think I would have answered this. I, I don't I don't think I would have I agree. said that. Yeah, I think a lot of things came to light with Kobe's death that not a lot of people knew about, me included. And I was like, oh my God, we lost a legend. Like we like, you know, the things that he already did and the things that he was about to do and his legacy and things like that. I'm like, all right. Um, Derek Jeter obviously speaks for herself, but I don't know. I think Kobe, you, maybe. You know, you were talking about earlier, talking about having hindsight and, you know, the things you wish you had done. Randy will tell you, I was the biggest Kobe hater his whole career. I slandered him. I even one time in Memphis, after he hit Mike Miller in the throat, which was inexcusable, I, I had my wife, who was working at a bar downtown, tell me he just walked in. And I text Randy, I said, I'm fixing to go down there and fight Kobe. And he said, bro, <laughs> He said, bro, do not do that. He's six foot eight. You're not going to get anywhere near you. He's going to absolutely whoop your tail. The reach, the reach alone. Did you go? No. Randy Randy, Randy taught me down. That's so great. I wish I would have I wish I would have heard the rest and been like, so I went anyway. (laughs) We talk a big game. J.R. Smith was walking by us one time and he was the whole time. Prior to that, he was talking about how much he hated J.R. Smith. Then J.R. Smith walked up, Randy, like, hey, man, can we get a pick together? So (laughs) we all all talk big games. That's incredible. I love it. All right, so this next question, we're going to find out everything about you right here on this final question. Would you rather do five years in jail or ten years in a coma? Five years in jail. Yeah, give me five years in jail all day. All Daniel, day. Daniel, enlighten them. Man, come on. Don't don't be don't be like all these other cats that come on here and just lie to our face. Jail is rough, and I ain't never been there. <laughs> it's my biggest fear. It's one of my biggest fears in life. I'm not trying to act like I would like want to go to jail, but I think that if somebody forced me into two choices, I think I would learn more from going to jail than I would in a coma for 10 years. Anthony, the interesting I'm, dynamic is the baseball players always pick jail. It was the MMA fighters and the football players who actually said coma. That, that's what makes it interesting. You baseball players ain't scared, apparently. Uh, I bet it's because we're, we're too soft all the time. We feel like we got to act hard. So just talking about jail makes us feel tougher. So that's probably what it is. As I've gotten older, I've realized what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And I know damn well I'm not good at jail. So but <laughs> I would not be good in jail. That's why I, I, I would learn some shit. <laughs> right. What, what I do know I'm good at is sleeping. So I'll go ahead and take a coma. Just a quick 10-year nap. That's it. Yep, you know, that's you, it, baby. I'll be you fresh. Know, Daniel, <laughs> you know, Daniel, I said I was gonna leave that last question off there, but I'm I'm actually I'm actually curious now. 
Uh, well, I wasn't going to ask it because you were the 39th pick, Anthony, but, you know, our normal question we'll ask to a lot of guys, uh, especially because, you know, they're in college and they haven't been drafted yet. Um, Austin Riley is the only one that we talked to post-draft. Uh, if you could be the first pick in the MLB draft, but the caveat was you had to cut all your friends loose, or you could be not drafted at all and you keep all your friends, which one are you doing? Oh, my God. <laughs> Man, I already been drafted, so I would say keep all my friends and not be drafted. See, that's why I didn't want to ask it after the fact. But if I, I asked ask the guy, it's easier for me. Yeah. But if I asked you in real time, what would you have said? Ooh, I would probably have been like, "Man, fuck my friends," you know. Like, <laughs> I say that all the time. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's funny. That's funny. That's a good one. I like that. Anthony, man, it's been a. a- a real pleasure, dude. We're blessed to have you on. Anything that you want to plug or promote before you you hop off here? Nah, man. Thank you, guys. I just appreciate this. I appreciate podcasting. I appreciate connecting with people that are doing cool things. And um, yeah, man, just give me some uh, give me some stuff to share on your guys' show. You know, like whenever this comes out and everything. And I want to put it out there because this is good stuff, and you guys are good people. And, and like I said, I just like mixing it up with people that that care about the right things and stuff. So I appreciate your guys' time. Absolutely, man. Y'all go out. Y'all follow him on Instagram at Cards and Culture at Anthony underscore Renato. Go listen to him on the Up and In podcast. Go to F45 and work out. Get your lift on. Get your cardio on. Get your hit fitness. All that good stuff. Anthony, man, anything we can do to help you out along the way, please reach out to us, brother. Absolutely. Same to you guys. Thank you. Like hearing Anthony's story, or you just like hearing average Joe talk X's and O's, please like and share the podcast on Facebook, retweet us on Twitter, listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor. As always, comments, ratings, and feedback is always welcome. We'll be back next episode where we're going to be talking LSU gymnastics with our girl, family now, Kaya Johnson. This has been the End Off the Bench Podcast. As always, remember, strong body, sharp minds, big grind. All the time, we're out.